I have a routine. <clears throat> I'm very much an obsessive person. Some of you know that. I do the same thing all the time. I always use a cough drop before I teach, and I didn't do it today. And that's why you have to be obsessive, because once you get in a routine, you know what you need to do. <clears throat> so if I have to stop and put a cough drop in my mouth, then forgive me of that. In our survey of the Old Testament, we have come to the fifth book, Deuteronomy. <clears throat> and that book and the four that precede it were all written by Moses. At the end of today's lesson, we will have covered 187 of the 929 chapters that make up the Old Testament. When you think of that, it means that Moses, of course, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was basically responsible for almost 20% of the Old Testament. That's a lot. We're thankful for that. What's interesting, we're not going to talk about this in any detail. What's interesting is that the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is accepted by conservative scholars. It is uh, debated, of course, by liberal scholars who don't want to accept anything that makes sense. And particularly, they focus on this book which is very ironic because there's internal evidence that's clear that Moses wrote this book. There is, there is evidence that Jesus attributed this book to Moses. And yet the liberal scholar stands up today and arrogantly says Moses didn't write this. That's why we reject liberalism. The, the nature of Deuteronomy, I think you could say, is twofold. It provides encouragement for God's people, the Jews, getting ready to go into the promised land. But at the same time, it also warns them of what could or will happen to them in that promised land. B big changes are coming when this book is written. Not the least of which is that Moses will be off the scene and there'll be a new leader. Moses addresses that even in this book. But there's some other changes that are going to affect these Jews. They have been living a nomadic life for 40 years. Moving, moving, no permanent dwelling. Once they cross that Jordan River and get into the land that God promised them, they become permanent dwellers, settled down people. That's going to be a transition that's going to take some getting used to. For, 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 for a long time, they have been given their food by God, graciously. Manna, that unusual bread-like substance every day except on the Sabbath and then they had enough from Friday to last till the first day of the week. Incidentally, let me, let me mention something to you to think about. If, if you don't, 
if you don't think about the providence of God in, in providing for people what they need, think about all this time, years of manna. But also think about this. That, that's not a very balanced diet. And yet we don't read of all these people dying of malnutrition or because they only ate manna. And so God is protecting them and caring for them. But when they cross the river, they have to cultivate eventually their own land and raise their own crops. Now, God is also taking care of them because he, he, he tells them when they come into this land, they're going to inherit vineyards that they didn't plant. They're going to eat crops that they didn't uh, start out. They're going to do that for a little while. But there's going to come a time when they're going to become farmers. They have to be to sustain themselves. That's a transition that's going to be different. Maybe this one would be challenging as well. They have mostly been isolated from others. Yeah, very large group of people traveling but together and not mixing themselves generally with the heathen people. Now they mix themselves some and it costs them, but when they get across the river, things are really changing. They will be spread out, but they'll be living among all kinds of idolatrous people. That will be a challenge. What about Deuteronomy? Let's start with the name, Deuteronomy. In the Hebrew Bible, it is given the title words. That's the translation of it, words. And that is because the very first word of the book is devarim, words. Hebrews were sometimes very simple in what they did. The first word is the title. Our English Bible takes the name Deuteronomy from the Septuagint. I mentioned this many times. Hope you don't mind the redundancy, but the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible it gives it the name uh, Deuteronomy. And, and the translation of the Greek word from which we get Deuteronomy means second law. Second law. Now, that does not mean law number two. What it means is a restatement of the previously given law, a recapitulation of the law. There was a good reason, in fact, a necessary reason for doing this, for repeating the law. Uh, an entire generation uh, which first heard the law from Mount Sinai is gone. And, and, and not just because of the passage of time, but because of the punishment of God saying that those who are 20 years of age and above will not enter the land because of unbelief. You got to the very border of the promised land, you sent spies out, they saw that it was a good land, but they came back so pessimistic. We can't do this, we can't take the land, we need to not try to do it, and that's a lack of faith. And God says, I'm not going to reward you for a lack of faith. And so there is a new generation now, and 
they are about to enter the land that God had promised them, and they needed to hear again. They Some of them hadn't heard it at all, but they needed to hear Moses tell them what was going to govern them and what was going to guide their lives. They needed to be prepared through the giving of the law because that law would be their guide. And it needed to be presented in a serious and straightforward way, and Moses does that. In fact, it's incredible how well he does it. As the message of Deuteronomy is delivered by Moses, the people not only get information from what Moses says about the law, but they're also going to get a history lesson as well. Because he's going to start all of this off by reminding them how they got to where they are now. We'll see that in just a few moments. But both elements of, of the book, I think, of that book are important. That is the statement, the information, but also the reminder. We'll talk about that a little bit later if we have time. The book itself, chronologically, only occupies a short period of time. They are in the plains of Moab. They are close to the entry point in which they will go into the land and, and the time is here. That's all found essentially at the very beginning of the book. If you look at chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side, eastern side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plains, opposite Surf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dizabab. Those were all little, little places, but very precisely pinpointing it. Then it says, it, it is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. An incident at Kadesh Barnea will be a significant thing that we'll notice in just a little bit. And, and then in verse 5, on this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law saying, there you go. But go back to verse 3. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. That's a very important statement. Remember it. He spoke to them the words that God had given to him to say to them. It's not Moses just saying, hey, I think I'd like to lecture you about something. This is God speaking through his representative, Moses. The majority of the book, just by way of synopsis, is taken up in three discourses of Moses, three different statements uh, of some length by Moses. And we're going to see that in a little bit. He is obviously near the end of his life. In fact, his death will be recorded in this book before it closes. And very near to the time that the children of Israel are going to cross over the Jordan River and actually be in the land of promise under the leadership of Joshua. Um, there, there's an interesting thing, and we'll get back to this a little bit later too, hopefully, the book ends with the account of the death of Moses in chapter 34. 
And most people, including me, would say that this part of the book obviously had to be written by someone other than Moses, and most likely Joshua, because Joshua was there, was already appointed to be his successor, and then Joshua would take over, and so it's likely that Joshua wrote it. There are some who suggest this, though, and, and it's not beyond the realm of reason. If Moses is being given his information by God, he could be given his infor information about his own death. He could have written it. I don't think he did, but he could have. Now, the purpose of Deuteronomy, and I've already stated this in a way, but the, the, the purpose of Deuteronomy seems clear. The, the experiences of the wilderness have clearly demonstrated, or should have clearly demonstrated, the trouble that is brought on people when they disobey God. Now you could say, you could reverse that and say, their experiences clearly show that when you obey God, you're blessed. But, but in the case of the Jews getting ready to enter the land, probably the more prominent message is, you need to remember what disobedience cost your forefathers. You need to remember that. Because if you do what they did, you will get what they got. That is punishment from God. Now, would things be better in a new land? Sometimes people think, well, just a transition to a different place makes all the difference in the world. It doesn't. Because unless they were willing to obey God, it wasn't going to make much difference whether they were in the wilderness or in the land of promise. Look at chapter 30 of, of this book, Deuteronomy 30. I want you to see how forcefully Moses states this, verses 19 and 20, the last two verses of the 30th chapter. Listen to Moses. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. I call heaven and earth as witnesses what I'm telling you. And then that appeal to do what is right. Incidentally, think about this for a moment. Moses was not indifferent to the future of his people. He, he, he did not say, well, I don't get to go in anyway. I don't care what happens to them. What, what does it matter to me what happens to them? I'm going to be dead. Moses does not feel that way. He wants them to be obedient. He has, he has been almost like a mother to them through all of this period of time, and he wants his children, if you don't mind the imagery, he wants his children to have a wonderful life after him. Incidentally, talking about the bigness of this man, the magnanimity of him, 
Moses does not quibble about what God has ordained for him. Oh, this is so unfair of you, God, to keep me out of the land. We'll talk about that more in a moment. The idea of obedience, of course, is not just an idea that's given to the children of Israel. It's carried over into the New Testament, isn't it? Look at Matthew 7. Uh, really, really familiar words. Matthew 7. But I think we need to note this, that, that this principle of more than just assuming that God's going to be pleased with you, but obeying Him is a principle that never changes. 721. Talking about judgment. That judgment day. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. There it is. Don't, you can't just say, Lord, Lord. You have to do what the Lord wants you to do. And then look at James 1. This is the only other one we'll notice. Hebrews, James 1, and verse 22. But be, what? Doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you think that hearing the word is enough, you're deceiving yourself. You have to be a doer, an obeyer of the word. Okay, what, what, what are the major themes of Deuteronomy? Well, more than we can talk about in one short class period, but here is an important one, and that is the unity of God. Perhaps the best known, I think, likely, of all the passages in Deuteronomy is from chapter 6. And if you look at chapter 6, beginning at verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is sometimes referred to as the Shema, S-H-E-M-A in our letters. And that's the Hebrew word for here, here. And, and these words are still today quoted by Orthodox Jews during every synagogue service. They, they, they quote these words. I think you, you need to uh, read more of the Bible in order to get the complete picture of what this idea is. And, and the foundation of it starts here. There is one God. There is one God. Only one. 
and 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 Moses made sure that in telling of God that that's the way he was presented in comparison to what others thought. Jews were to recognize the singularity of God, one God versus multiple gods. Because even in Egypt, they had seen multiple gods. In the wilderness, they had run into a couple of situations that involved multiple gods. They would go into the land, and it would be all around them, multiple gods of all sorts, all types. They were not real. These are human creations, and they needed to remember there is one God, not many gods. Now, had they really steadfastly held on to that concept, they would have avoided a score of problems, a multitude of bad situations. But because they didn't remember that there's one God and allowed themselves to be influenced by people who said, oh, there's not one God, there's a bunch of gods. There's the God of the sun and the God of the moon and the God of the rivers and the God of the trees, God of snake, all kinds of gods. Not according to Moses. There's one God. Now listen. We don't intentionally put ourselves in opposition to people. But you can't have it both ways. And we might as well realize that if we insist on one God, that everyone else who insists on more than one God is either wrong or we're wrong. You can't say multiple gods is the same as one God. It's not the same. We don't have to be mean about it, but we do have to stand for what the truth is, and that is there's one God. Now, an expanded understanding of that concept would help us to see that one God exists in three persons who are all God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God. We call that the Godhead, and, and we don't have time this morning to talk about all the scriptures that give evidence of the truth that, that there are personalities, be, uh, uh, beings within the Godhead that are all God, and yet the singularity of God is the same. Now, there were three personalities at the time that Moses said there's one God. Because there have always been, if we understand the concept of God, three personality. Three beings in one being. It's difficult for us to understand that. Incidentally, the, the Jews who were living at the time of Jesus had they understood the real concept of the Godhead, would have accepted Jesus. But they didn't. They were looking for a Messiah, a Deliverer, a Savior. But they stumbled over the idea that Jesus was, in fact, that Savior. But more than a Savior, He was their God. 
Now, while Jesus was on the earth, and if you read the New Testament accounts of his life, you see this clearly. He insisted that he was God. The Jews put him to death in part, not only because of their jealousy, but because they said he blasphemes because he makes himself God. Again, we're, we're faced with one of those can't-be-both-way situations. Either he is absolutely God and was right in what he said, or he is absolutely wrong and deserves to be crucified if he's not God. The, the Jews stumble over that. They didn't believe he was God. And because they didn't believe he was God, they didn't have a Savior. Incidentally, it is so sad today, they still don't understand. They're still looking for a Messiah. Even though the Messiah's already come, they're still looking for him. And I venture to say that if someone came and said he was the Messiah, I don't care what else he would say, they'd say, no, we don't accept that. They're never going to accept a Messiah because they didn't accept the true one to start with. Some people still stumble over that today. Uh, there are religious groups that there's a Pentecostal group called the One God Holiness Church that says there is only one God and that's God the Father. They're just one. God the Father. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, tell us that Jesus is not the same as God. He, he's second Dairy. And Mormons would even say he's created. Um, talk to a Jehovah Witness. You believe Jesus is God? No. Jehovah is God, and that's all. So let's get away from them, okay? How about us? Years ago, a very fine teacher of the Bible said many of our people in the church are really tritheist. They believe in three gods. And unfortunately, the, the tritheist also has a pecking order. Here's God the Father, way up here. And here's God the Son, a little lower, and then maybe the Holy Spirit's way down here. That's not the Bible presentation of the Godhead. Just recently, I learned of a preacher who teaches that the Holy Spirit, this is a preacher in the churches of Christ, who teaches that the Holy Spirit is just an influence. That's all he really, not a he at all. It's just, it's just an influence. That, that's, you have to wonder about how Paul would encourage Christians not to grieve an influence. You don't grieve an influence. Okay, our God, that God, the one God, is to be loved, and we need not to overlook that. He needs to be loved completely and fully. Verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And immediately we think of that man who came to Jesus and said, what is the great commandment of the law? And maybe he thought he was going to stir up some kind of controversy, but Jesus may have surprised him 
when in Matthew 22 and verses 35 through 38, he said the great commandment is this, this very thing that we just read. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your being. That's the great commandment. And I didn't mean that the other commandments are not important or necessary, but listen, if you get that one right, you're going to get the other ones right too. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, if you love him completely, you're going to do what he says to do. That's what loving him means. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. That's the evidence of love. There's a second theme that's related closely to, in fact, in this passage, and that is the importance of teaching. The passage that we just talked about from Deuteronomy 6 also stresses the importance of teaching the next generation. And parents, according to Deuteronomy 6, were to use every opportunity available to them to instruct their children. Look how thoroughly Moses says that. You shall teach them diligently. Incidentally, you're going to hear a sermon this morning about being diligent. Okay, but he says, you teach your children diligently. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, all the time. It's not just when you take them to Bible school on Sunday morning or when you take them to Bible school on Wednesday night. It's, it's a part of your daily life. And every opportunity you have, whether it's a beautiful sunrise or a sunset or something else to bring out the glory of God by instructing your children. It's obvious that Israel failed to do this. In fact, when we get to the, to the book of Joshua, we will read in the very first chapter that you had a new generation that didn't even know God. Indifference, carelessness on the part of parents created ignorance in their children, which obviously has to create disobedience. And the Jews suffered for that failure, suffered again and again. And incidentally, we don't like to do it, but that's a, that's a warning to Christian parents today. I, 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 we've had too many conversations with too many people over the years to think that our children just picked it up on their own. And, and, and some have been heartbroken because they thought their children were really well instructed in the Lord and when they left home, people found out they weren't well instructed. And much of that, unfortunately, was due to parental failure. Not just their failure, the children to pick it up, but the parents' failure. Anybody who thinks that the church has the responsibility to teach children don't understand. Yeah, can we teach children? Yeah, we should. We should use every opportunity we can. But it's not the church's responsibility, it's the parents' responsibility. Okay. Third theme. Chosen people. 
Look at chapter 7. Sorry, we don't have time to talk more about chapter 7, verse 6. God says through Moses, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all people. Started out with one guy. In verse 8, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel occupied a special place in the eyes of God. He chose them to be his people. And they needed to understand that that choosing was not because of them, it was because of God. God chose them because he wanted to love them and wanted to bring a Messiah through them. That didn't mean a free ride for them. We see their responsibility. Look at Deuteronomy 10, beginning at verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Wait a minute. We're chosen people. You mean we have requirements? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. Look at chapter 30. Verse 15 again. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go in to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Here it is. You're chosen. God loves you. But don't let that make you think that you can be disobedient and not suffer consequences. Again, passage of time, Jews developed a very wrong attitude. We're God's people. We're God's people. And that means that God will protect us and bless us and he hates everybody else and only loves us. And they were wrong. They were wrong. Now God use, uses special terms through inspired writers of the New Testament to show how he views his people today. And incidentally, the Israel of God today is not the Israel over in Palestine. The Israel of God today is the Lord's church. They are God's people. And in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, he, Peter says, you are an elect people, a holy priesthood. You are special because you've been called out of darkness into God's light. 
Again, no free ride for us, all right? Does God love his people? Absolutely. Will God punish his people if they're disobedient? Absolutely. Nothing's changed. And then quickly we need to note the consequences of the sin of Moses. What a sad, sad story that is. Moses, the great leader, committed a foolish sin. And it's not in, the sin is not recorded in Deuteronomy, but in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. The people complain, wanting water, and God says to Moses, what? You shall, what? Speak to the rock. And what does Moses do? He strikes the rock. Now before God had told him to strike the rock, he did it, and water came forth. God says, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. Water came forth anyway, didn't it? But it was disobedience. And incidentally, the sin of Moses, I think in this case, you would have to say is twofold. It's twofold. He disobeyed God, first of all, by striking instead of speaking. But he also dishonored God. Because remember what he says? Must we bring forth water? We doesn't say God and me, it says Aaron and me. Must we do this? Must we do this? Now Moses was a very humble man. But remember, he is perturbed with his people. Incidentally, there's a little warning there, isn't it? Anger can cause you to say things you wish you never said. Or to do things you wish you'd never done. You've got to control your anger. Moses didn't. And he foolishly made a mistake. Incidentally, God immediately passed sentence on him in Numbers. Immediately. You're not going to go into the promised land. We see it carried out in Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 32. Chapter 32. Beginning verse 48. Chapter 32, 48. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that same, that very same day, the day he finished all of these discourses. Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend. And be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me. You didn't make me holy in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go up there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. That, that may seem harsh to us after all that Moses had done. Moses does not complain about that. He does not say God's treating me unfairly. In fact, he admits that he failed God. I guess there's got to be a warning there too, friends, and that is that we can serve the Lord faithfully for a long time 
And then we can turn away from God and still lose our souls. Now, I don't believe Moses lost his soul. I believe the punishment was temporal because I also believe Moses had repented of this. And incidentally, one of the strong reasons I believe Moses didn't lose his soul is found in the New Testament. What would that be? Appeared at the transfiguration. Appeared at the transfiguration. Now, would God have brought a, a lost, condemned man to that great scene? No. But Moses had to pay the temporal price. And that is, got to die. Not going into the land stand. Say it a little louder because we got people that are four miles away over there. Right. A dear friend of Edie uh, is Jewish, and we made the point Jesus will return one day, and, and, and that is God. And her comment was, I will believe when I see Jesus coming. <laughs> too late. That's <laughs> too late. Too late. Everybody will believe then. <laughs> the atheists will believe then. Uh, sad. That is sad. And, and it's and it's really a shame because there are many, many good <laughs> Jewish people. Many good Jewish people. Well, let me mention one. Well, yeah, go ahead. You mentioned the providence of God in a very effective way. There are certain Yes, sir. And, and it's so difficult to understand why the skeptics can't understand that there has to be some great mind behind what we have. Because it's been clearly pointed out, you know, if the earth were a little bit closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If it were a little further away, we'd freeze to death. Why is there oxygen? Why is it available? Why is there water to drink and food to eat? All of those things are just accidents. Well, listen, you, got, you have to have more faith to be an atheist than you do to be a Christian. I believe that. Because you put your faith in something so absurd that just human logic would say it's absurd. All these things, all these things didn't just happen. Let, let me mention this quickly. We're almost out of time. Three, three discourses. The first one in Deuteronomy 1.1 through 4.43 and, and this is basically a review, a survey of the past. And, and, and Moses reminded the people of the sin that caused them to be in that wilderness for 40 years. They needed to remember that. This wasn't an accident that got you into the wilderness. In the experiences of the wilderness. He exhorted them to obey God and to shun idols. And, and to honor that privileged relationship they had with God. Then in, in 444 through 2629, a, the, the longest of these is what we might call responsibility. Because after he talks about reviews history, he also says, here are the basic laws that you're expected to keep. 
And, and he gives those. Uh, he repeats the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. He reviews the circumstances of the original giving of the law at Mount Sinai. He tells the people not only to keep the covenant, but to teach it to their descendants. And then he impresses the fact that God is destroying the Canaanites in chapter 7 because of their idolatry and urge Israel not to walk that way. Talks about true worship, about clean and unclean animals, treatment of the poor, holy days, uh, civil matters about justice, death penalty, um, provision for a king even is talked about in chapter 17, the, the, the way priests are supposed to be supported. All those things might seem to be trivial to us, but were really important in the overall governing of the people. And in the third discourse, chapter 27 through chapter 30, verse 20. This is, to keep this alliterative, the reward, the future. And, and, and the reward, according to Moses, is that blessings will come because of obedience, chapter 28. But also in chapter 28, the reward will be punishment if you disobey God. And then in, in chapter 29, and I wish we had time, chapter 29 and 30, a, a, a very strong appeal to his people to be faithful, to be faithful to God. And then chapter 31 through 34 is his farewell. This is not really much of a discourse as much as it is just saying goodbye. He talks about Joshua being charged as a successor, uh, about delivering the written law to Israel's uh, leaders, uh, gives a final charge to the people in chapter 32, and then blesses Israel by tribes in chapter 33. And as we mentioned, his death is foretold in 34. Great book. Uh, if, if you haven't been a reader of Deuteronomy lately, it will be well worth your time. We didn't even get to mention chapter 18 when Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like unto him, that is Moses, therefore a prophet, and you should hearken to him. Jesus would be that prophet, as we see in the New Testament. Thanks for being here today.